hello. Hello, John. Hi, Dan Benjamin. Where are you? Are you still in Hawaii? Are you back in the, the main continent? Where are you? What's happening to you? I'm uh, broadcasting live from under the banyan tree at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel. Oh, very, very nice. Very nice. No, you, I was asking. True. Oh, where are you? Well, I'm not at the under the banyan tree at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel. That's no. a that's a reference to an old, 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 old jazz program, yeah. a radio program, like uh, where they did. They had a they had a, a live big band from under the banyan tree. Very nice at the Royal Hawaiian. No, I am at the uh, Queen Kapiolani Hotel, mm-hmm. which is which is down Waikiki. Uh, not that far, but. I'm looking out the window here at a beautiful view of of Diamond Head. Mm. I can hear the um it's been kind of monsoon weather here. Uh there there's been a lot of flooding, a lot of uh crazy crazy rain and then last night something I'd never seen in Hawaii, a big thunderstorm, lightning, you know, crazy torrential rain. So that's been very exciting. That's it. That's all you got. Oh well, I mean, <clears throat> <laughs> my kid is very anxious about lightning and thunder, so that was that was fun. Yeah. I'm leaving. I'm leaving Oahu tonight, and uh, I'm sorry to see it go. I've realized <clears throat> on this trip mm-hmm. that I've I've kind of made Hawaii part of my religion. And I've never been comfortable with that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I've never, and I've always felt like that's not a thing that you get to do with Hawaii. Like Hawaii is its own thing and you can't have a personal relationship with uh, with Hawaii. I, I guess I've always been suspicious of people that were like, oh, you know, there's, you know, like I think of Paris as my, or as of our place or my place. It's like, you can't really Paris. You can't really, it's not really your place. <laughs> but I've been having Hawaii experiences my whole life. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and I've, I've integrated it into, I, I, I make no claims to have found any, Hawaiian spirituality that I've adopted for myself. It's yeah. much more that I've that I've incorporated Hawaii and some ideas into my outlook. But <clears throat> you know, this this time the weather was very crazy and I, I did quite a bit of snorkeling, but it was always in rough water and mm-hmm. I had I'm at a, a similar point in my life that I that I've been before in recent times and and I went out and was snorkeling and it was it's very different here from Maui. And although I had a couple of of wonderful days snorkeling, I was you know, I never quite relaxed all the way down to where I hoped to get. And, um, and I never saw a turtle and I kind of, I've grown accustomed to sort of seeing a turtle as, and the, the, the feeling like the turtle has arrived at a, at a point and at a place in my trip and in my meditations that, that it feels significant. And I, I, 
spent a lot of time out in the water thinking like, well, look, you just are here and you just do your thing and try and get your breath regulated and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and the rest will come, you know? And, um, and I didn't see a turtle this time and I feel like it was significant that I didn't, not that it was a portent, Mm -hmm. but I, I was, at one point I was floating and someone nearby, uh, you know, not like, I don't like people around me when I'm snorkeling. I don't want to see anybody else. You well, know, you can be, I mean, you talked about the whole, um, you know, the whole thing with your, uh, you know, the claustrophobia and stuff. So I can yeah, understand yeah. that you don't want like a hovering feeling. You don't want to be surrounded at the same time that you're struggling with, with that. Yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> I don't want to be aware of other people. You know, I'm, uh, whatever my process is out there, I'm going, into a smaller and smaller place, not a place where I'm like, okay, now I'm ready to have fun. It's mu- it's it's never like that. It's always like down, down, down. Right. And someone nearby was like, "Hey, a turtle over here!" And they were they were, they were part of my party, so they were speaking to me. You know, like it's over here. Come come here. And I was so offended. And we're out in the open ocean. You know, it was. I mean, we were protected by a reef, but. We weren't in some cove. We were out, um, really getting bounced around, and I was trying to, I was trying to stay, you know, a long way from them. And I, there's the whole philosophy of you shouldn't swim alone, you shouldn't snorkel alone. But I have, I have no confidence that any of these people are going to be able to what firemen carry me back to the beach. I mean, we're 600 yards offshore. Like I'm kind of on my own in terms of. The, the point is not to get in trouble. You don't need a buddy. That's all I hear you saying. You don't need a buddy. <clears throat> I don't want one, whether I need one or not. And, and it, one of the crazy realizations is you're out there on these reefs, and although you're 600 yards offshore, some of these reefs are three feet under the water. Like if I got in, if I got in trouble, I could just stand up. I mean, you know, the reef is huge, right? So you if you look down off the side of the reef, mm-hmm. you're, the water's 40 feet deep. Sure. But I mean, you would get cut to shit standing on one of those reefs, but you wouldn't die. You you wouldn't die. Right. Anyway, I, I realized that I didn't like, I did not want to be shown where a turtle was. Mm -hmm. I was really, really, um, not offended because it's not their fault. They're they're The, the other people that are snorkeling are on their own mission. Mm Mm-hmm. But I, I very strongly felt like, if a turtle, if a turtle wants to see me, that's one thing. But I am not out here to see a turtle. You know, um, I can't be. If I'm out here to see a turtle, then everything is, everything is different. You, you can't take that out of your mind. Of course, you're there to see the turtle. Well, no, <clears throat> no, I absolutely have to take it out of my mind. And, and my feeling is that a turtle always has to be the one that makes that choice. Um, (laughs) Oh, and, and by that, I mean the turtle, like capital T, capital T. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's for me, I guess, much more than any one individual turtle making that choice. Cause any individual turtle is having their own experience in the day, but 
you know, if, if the turtle wants to interact with me, then that has to, that's, that's completely independent of, of whether, um, certainly anybody around me saw a turtle or whether they, uh, because it's, it's easy to misunderstand, right? I mean, I, I, uh, I don't blame anybody for being like, we're here to see the turtles. John loves to see the turtles. Oh my God. (laughs) But as I'm out there, I don't want to see the turtles. What I want is to, what I want is for the turtle to feel like I am ready or to feel like, like that time you had that the dog came and found you and you spent the whole evening with the dog and the dog wasn't even real. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, who knows if the turtles are real. That's right. I've heard that there are no more turtles left. But it's all about, uh, I mean, the thing is that I didn't see a turtle on this trip and I am not upset at all. I'm not, um, I'm not bummed because I feel like, right, I didn't see a turtle this trip and and that's because I never got there. And um, and that's a important that's just as important to know and understand as whatever it is that the turtles are there to show me or whatever whatever would have happened if I had seen a turtle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just as meaningful that I didn't. So I feel very, still very like blessed about it. Mm -hmm. But these are all on uh, uh, kind of newish or uncomfortable formulations for me in the sense of even acknowledging that I have some kind of spiritual practice around this. And certainly because I do take I do take this with me back to the mainland. It's kind of the whole aspect of it that that's bigger than just like I had a Hawaii, you know, like I have Hawaiian vacation, you know, it's much more like a a year round kind of in the, in the contrast between Alaska and Hawaii as a kid. Yeah. We, we thought we, saw the whole world. Right. Thought we understood like the extremes of the, the boundaries. And of course, neither Alaska nor Hawaii are the real world or they don't understanding the two poles. But that like, isn't that interesting? Doesn't that strike you as interesting? Because I don't know anybody else other than you who spends or has spent time in Alaska and Hawaii. I know a lot of people in Seattle, like that's no big deal, but you're like at these two extreme places and it just somehow really fits with you in, in like as with your personality, but it, don't you find that that's interesting that those are the places that you're kind of from and drawn to? I think a lot of Alaskans uh, are very familiar with Hawaii and vice versa. When, when I that's was growing up, in the seventies, you know, there's 49th and 50th state They're as they're as close to one another as either of them are to anywhere else. Mm. And I mean, I guess you can get 
from Alaska to the mainland of America in three hours and it takes five hours to go to Hawaii, but it still feels like you're, you're closer to Hawaii in a way. And the Alaska airlines and Hawaiian airlines used to fly, uh, for $99 back and forth. And so I, so weird, I think it's much weirder that Hawaiians have visited Alaska than it is the, I mean, Alaskans have a reason to go to Hawaii. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, I think it's, I think what's funny is that until I was, until I first went to the United States, um, outside of Seattle, I had, I had a a much better or a much bigger sense of what the world was by, by comparing and contrasting these two places because, you know, the Honolulu was sort of similar size to Anchorage. I mean, it had a, it what, Anchorage in the 1970s had dirt streets. If you went further out than Lake mm-hmm. Otis and, <laughs> and Northern lights and Honolulu had grass, grass huts four blocks off of Waikiki. Um, you know, there were tiki torches burning everywhere here in the seventies and now neither place is really recognizable uh, from it, in any comparison to what they were in the 1970s, but, but yeah, none of this prepares you to go to San Francisco and, and find a coffee shop and order pancakes. Right. And, and in neither place will you, d- did you, at least in the old days, in neither place would anybody yell at you. Mm-hmm. Nobody yelled at you really in Honolulu or in Anchorage. Whereas they will in San Francisco, <laughs> but, but, but to kind of say like that there's a place in my life for Hawaii uh, is to kind of ask for, or hope for there to be a place in Hawaii for me. And the two things aren't necessarily related or, or, um, one can be true and the other isn't right. Like there, there maybe isn't a place for, for me in Hawaii, although there's a place for Hawaii in me, but I, but I'm increasingly comfortable with the idea that there's a place in Hawaii for me. It's just, it's become very expensive here. And, expensive it's not just expensive around the resorts it's just incredibly expensive to be anywhere in hawaii now right and and that's very strange because the hawaiians themselves do not have any money and hawaii did not used to be expensive in that way so for for a long time it felt like sure it's expensive if you stay at the royal hawaiian it's expensive if you stay right on the beach in a big hotel, but there are a lot of other ways to be in Hawaii. And now there are fewer and fewer of those ways. I mean, if you get some little shack up in the Hills, it's still going to be expensive. Yeah. And these little shacks down in the towns that are close to the beach, not on the beach, mind you. Yeah. They're, 
a million dollars for two bedroom house. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I don't think that there's any, that there's any way that I would live in Hawaii. That seems crazy. Mm-hmm. That seems really crazy. You're thinking, you're thinking about it though. Uh, no, only, only in that I, I, I figured this out about a week ago. I'm the exact age that my mom was when I graduated from high school. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like, like, like basically she was my age, you know, to the month. Hmm. And it's one thing to say like, oh, my dad, because I was, my, my dad was 52 when I was four years old, mm-hmm. three or four years old. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I've, I've always been so far away in age from any memory of my father that there's never been any way to compare it. I mean, I remember the first time that I looked at my dad and said, wow, he's, he's old. <laughs> How old is he when? I mean, he was in his sixties, Yeah, you know, he was 62 or something. And I was like, my dad is really old, mm. but, but my mom was my age, my senior year. Mm-hmm. And so I have a pretty clear picture of what my mom's life has been since then, because it's been my adult life. Right. And to be, and my mom is 87 now. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So it's, uh, you know, it's like the, the Brimley cocoon line or all those games that Merlin and I play where it's like, Oh, you're the same distance from the Beatles red album as you are from the moon landing. Right. Sure. All those games are fun and scary and weird, but after you've played them for a while and it's like, yeah, I've had friends for 30 years. That's not going to get any, um, that's not amazing anymore. You know, it's not, a, it's not astonishing. It's, it's much more interesting to say like, I've had this t-shirt for 30 years. Yeah. But even that it's like past a certain point, the longer I go without throwing that t-shirt away, the, the bigger that number is going to be. Mm-hmm. I had a swim, a pair of swim trunks that I bought here in Hawaii in the nineties. And I took them on my walk across Europe and almost never wore them. I think I wore them two times. Um, and they've been in my drawer. I've worn them every summer. They're, they're tattered. And I put them on, on this trip and they just didn't fit anymore. There was something in the architecture of them and they were completely faded and, and, um, I left them, I left them behind. Hmm. I left them in Hawaii and I didn't, and I didn't, I did a little, I can't do something like that without having a small ceremony, but it was a very small ceremony. It was very <laughs> like, it was between me and the swim trunks. It was like, okay, <clears throat> I'm sending you back. You know, I, it's appropriate for me that I leave you here in Hawaii where I, where we met for the first time. Uh, but I'm not going to throw you in a waste basket. I'm going to hide you somewhere, but this is the last we're going to talk about it. You've served me well. Farewell. Swim trunks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. what what um so there's a there's a belief 
in Japan, I think, and maybe it's the Shinto religion, maybe it's part of Buddhism, because I see, I see it in, in Japanese Buddhism as well. There's a belief that, not necessarily that objects, physical things are alive, but that there is a sort of, a, and I'm not explaining this well because I don't know that much about it. So maybe you do, or maybe one of the listeners can enlighten me better. But they almost, there is a sort of respect for things, even if that respect is directed at the people who made the things, the craftsmanship of making the thing, connecting to the materials that were used, to the tree that gave its life to build the chair kind of thing, you know, this sort of paying a respect to something. And where, where I first learned about this is, of course, I don't, I don't do Zen meditation. I do what's called Vipassana meditation or what, what the kids call mindfulness meditation, which is all the rage now. 15 years ago, no one heard about it. And now everyone's mm-hmm. getting to benefit from it with like apps, which is like really cool. But one of the things that I learned when I was studying a little bit about Zen meditation is that they will often like bow to their cushion that they're about to sit on. There's a lot of respect paid to the, the about items and stuff like that. And it seems to me like you've, you tap into that in a way, but I want to understand more about why, why, because I don't off the top of my head, I don't know anyone else that might have had a ceremony for a pair of swim trunks. And I, I, it, it makes sense to me that you did, but I don't understand what the inspiration uh, for that was probably because I have zero sentimentality about anything physical or any object. We talked about our differences here, but I'm very curious to learn about that. Like why, why not just throw them in the trash or donate them to the, you know, Goodwill or whatever? Well, nobody would want them at the Goodwill. I'll tell you that, but Uh, I talk about it in terms of sentimentality because I don't know another way to talk about it, but, mm-hmm. but it's really not sentimental as much as it is. It, it would have felt very disrespectful to not give the swim trunks a little ceremony given the length of time of their service, given the, the many, many places that we'd been together um, but who's other than you, who's going to know about the ceremony or feel, feel anything from the ceremony? It's just you, it's for you, right? Or am I missing something? Is there a, a karmic, a karmic thing happening in the world that's bigger than just you and the, the swim trunks? Do you think the well, swim I've... trunks notice? Have you inhabited the swim trunks with some kind of life by doing this? Yeah, I think the swim trunks would would feel slighted. Um because yeah, the you know, the swim trunks um the swim trunks didn't ask to be born. Mm-hmm. But they also didn't ask much for me. They were um they were pretty selfless in in the sense of like most of the year they lived in a dark drawer, but then they got brought out and, and 
very exciting things happened. They went <clears throat> to the Caribbean. They went to Europe. They went to Hawaii. They, they've been all over. They've been in warm water and cold. Um, <clears throat> so what is the, what's the ceremony for? Mm-hmm. I mean, <clears throat> I don't feel like it's for me in the sense that I wish I could avoid it. I wish that there was a part of me that wished that I could hand the swim trunks off to someone, to a valet, and say, will you see that these swim trunks get a decent burial? Uh, Because I feel like I would have felt that the, that the, um, that the contract was fulfilled, that the loop was closed, if if I'd been able to do that. But in the absence of a valet, in the absence of a a um, you know, in the in the words of Ben Ben Kingsley in the movie Sneakers, mm-hmm. I can't I can't kill my friend, but I can have this guy kill my friend. That those weren't actually Ben Kingsley's words, and the and Sneakers is a terrible movie. But I feel that way about anything that I've had a relationship with for any length of time. Um, you know, when I walk down the d- d- down any boulevard and see something in the gutter that obviously was um, particularly like a child's toy, but even something that just had a long use – and I see it disposed of unceremoniously. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gives me a pang, not just for the for the child that lost its toy, but for the toy, mm-hmm. uh, which is a which which has to be uh, distinguishable from sentimentality. You know, my dad was kind of an an animist or. Um, his friends growing up were all Japanese and his spirituality, the stuff that he talked about, uh, his values, he never made an explicit connection to certainly not Shinto, but also didn't really connect his behavior to having known a lot of Japanese kids growing up, had a, having, uh, played in Japanese neighborhoods but his his spirituality was very connected to ancestor worship and to yeah a, a thumbnail sketch of what i understand about a japanese approach to <clears throat> to the spiritual world he wasn't quite at the level i am where he's um where he's giving funerals to pencils. <laughs> but, you know, when I go through the natural world, well, and the city, I, I'm not just saying hello to, to crows, you know, I'm, I, I, I interact with buildings kind of the same way. Like everything has a spirit. And it's not, it's the same with the, uh, uh, 
a complete lack of belief in ghosts, but also a very a, a, a grave sensitivity to ghosts. Yeah, and a and a conviction that there are no such thing as UFOs, but also a, a very profound consciousness of UFOs. Um, I don't. I try not to let that intrude, but I do schlep things past their expiration date. Mm-hmm. And I do stand at the side of a building getting knocked down and I just instinctively have a little ceremony for the building that incorporates like hopefulness for the new building or, you know, at least like an understanding of the, of the cycle. I don't just walk around mourning all that's been lost. Mm-hmm. I'm very hopeful about all the things that are new. I like a new pencil as mm-hmm. much as I, but I, I, I don't feel that there's much cost in giving a, in giving a pencil like its own rights. Yeah. And I mean, R I T E. Um, you know, it's not like I build a ship for it and set it on fire, but I might, if I collected enough pencils, I might, I might build a, a funerary arc and for the, for the lot of them, it's very hard for me to understand, frankly, Dan. And I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel entirely that it's a gift to have that relationship to things i i feel like it's a burden somewhat because john if you remember when i was young when i was a boy that is that is everything you're describing is exactly how i related to things in the world and i vividly remember that that kind of thing and it's not as simple as sentimentality is it it's more than that Mm mm-hmm and um, I felt burdened by it too because it wasn't possible to just throw something away or to not use something or ignore something. It's like it, it you almost had to do something special or yeah. you'd wind up having to keep the thing forever. Well, I can't get rid of that. And we've talked about this before, but it's been a while. And I think, you know, for me, I think it was a conscious change that happened well into my adulthood when I kind of started to make a, to sort of distance myself from that kind of stuff consciously. Yeah. Um, but I did it in a way that it's not where, when I look at something that I think that it doesn't have a value, uh, or that I don't respect what went into making it or that I didn't have a great time with it. It's more, I felt like I was the one that was carrying those things. I was carrying them. I was carrying the weight of that burden and responsibility to those things, but getting nothing back from it. And it was almost, I wonder, I wonder if it wasn't a little bit fear-based in a way, almost in a superstitious kind of a way. Like, well, if I don't do send this thing off the way it should be sent off or acknowledge it or respect it or think about it or save it forever. Then almost, it was almost like, well, there'll be some kind of like comeuppance 
for that, you know, like the same way that you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a friend and then completely ghost them because that's not nice. And the friend's feelings would get hurt and you wouldn't want the friend to ghost to you, for example, although people ghost each other all the time, you, you know, it, it's becoming more and more accepted. But I think the philosophy is you wouldn't want to be ghosted. So don't do that. The golden rule. And it almost seems like you're executing on the golden rule with objects. But do you feel that there is a consciousness to the swim trunks or the pencil? I mean, is that is that is there that belief in you that something is actually in receipt of your goodwill? Or is it the universe in general that you're kind of paying tribute to? I definitely will... I definitely will use a pencil that is clearly um, deficient because the idea of not giving it its fair shake feels unfair. And unfair to whom, if not the pencil itself? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like my superstition, like I'll walk under a ladder all day. Mm. I'll, I'll let a black cat cross my path. I, my favorite number is 13. Umbrella inside? No, I'm not a monster. Well, why not? Uh, uh, you're going to knock over a lamp with an umbrella inside. What if you have space for it? Would I open an umbrella inside? Mm -hmm. No, that just seems like a it seems like a noob move. But not because but of superstition. No, I just don't have umbrellas around. Is one thing. But open an umbrella inside? No, it just it just feels like something that an amateur would do. What about salt spilling salt? I I throw salt over my shoulder and knock on wood, but as jokes, like mm -hmm. I don't. I don't feel if I if I'm not able to knock on wood or throw salt over my shoulder, I'm I'm not concerned at all by it. But I do I do it as a kind of like a, a Western Western tradition, a little bit of of like folk voodoo. So the the fear. I don't feel I don't feel the fear of consequence. It's all it's all in the heart. Mm. It's it's all a kind of what well, I don't know if I've ever talked about this before, but in grade school, probably third grade, mm -hmm. um I got a bag of of valentines at the store because every kid it was even then, even in 19 77, 76, you had to give a Valentine to everybody in class. Mm -hmm. Yes, it had to be fair and equal. We weren't monsters. Not like those kids that grew up in the 60s that could just give Valentines to the peoples they wanted. And there was a Valentine. There was a picture of a little girl, and she had been 
she had been, he loves me, he loves me not, ting with a flower. Pulling the yeah. petals off. <laughs> he loves me, he loves me not. And in this one drawing that was done by some uh, industrial cartoonist working in uh, working in the sweat mines of drawing valentines mm-hmm. this little girl was sitting there with a the flower in one hand and she and and at her feet were all the petals that she'd plucked off of it and she was down to one petal on the flower mm-hmm. and we and it was conveyed to us by the power of the drawing that the the, the last petal was he loves me not, mm. and the little girl was crying because she'd come to this realization and mm-hmm. she didn't have the heart to pull the final petal off, and the caption of the. Valentine said something like, you know, I'll be devastated if you don't love me. Mm -hmm. Some, I I forget the exact words. Well, this was a pretty uh, sophisticated emotional journey to put on a Valentine in a bag. Yeah. With a bunch of other like sweetheart stuff and like be mine Cupid stuff. Mm-hmm. And in going through this bag and, and picking out the Valentines and say, and this is, although this was into an era where we had to give Valentines to every kid, it was not all the way to this contemporary era where you buy a pack of Valentines, but there's only five kinds mm-hmm. and you just get six of each kind or something like I. I, I saw some pack of Valentines the other day where it was the the variety of or the lack of variety in Valentines was an insult to everyone involved. Mm-hmm. So this was the only one of these in this bag, and I was so moved by the plight of the little girl that I definitely couldn't give this Valentine to anybody because, well, first of all. I didn't know what it would uh, what it was like to feel that way about someone, but also how wh- why would how could you burden someone with this story? Mm-hmm. But I ke- so I kept the Valentine for myself, and I and it became a kind of um a sort of relic. I. I took it out and studied it. I used to draw it. I would sit with a pencil and a piece of paper and I would draw the Valentine. Mm -hmm. And I think trying to connect with what it was about the drawing that was so effective. But I carried that Valentine with me for years and would reflect upon it and it never failed to move me and I still have it. And what, what the Valentine did and does even, I mean, I'm, I'm emotional thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
why it's still effective. The pregnancy of that moment of particularly of not wanting to not wanting what is what uh, what is inevitable mm-hmm. uh, to come to pass and thinking that you can stop it and knowing that you can't like there was no she had there was no deviousness in her she didn't stand there with the last pedal and say I'm just not going to pluck it mm-hmm. and so you know so this this terrible end won't come to pass I mean she knew that. She, she had a responsibility to pluck that final petal and, and, uh, and it was, and it was awful. It was an awful responsibility. So the, so in the story, the, the, the girl's feeling of obligation and her feeling that, it was, you know, it was out of her hands. It had been decided. She had chosen this flower as the as the 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 flower was the arbiter. She didn't have to have chosen it. She didn't have to begin this this doomed game in the first place. She could have left the flower in the ground. Mm-hmm. Right. She made the choice. She went on the journey. <laughs> She did. She set the she set the course of action in motion, and now she'd arrived at the conclusion. And there was there's no turning back. You can't throw the flower down and go. Eh, it doesn't matter. Ha ha ha! It doesn't count. If you don't get the result you like, mm-hmm. no, you cast your lots. And so her moment of of reckoning really really resonated with me obviously as an eight-year-old um that you you know you need to be careful what spells you try to cast but that the that the item itself that the drawing and the and the valentine itself became an emblem for me Mm -hmm. and the item it's not just that the image became an el- an emblem, but that the item became a uh, yeah, like a a shard of the true cross. That's the thing that I can't account for. But I would have fought you over that Valentine. You know, I would yeah. have thrown many many things into the fire before I would let that, that Valentine be taken from me. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's tied up in it. It's, I don't think there, I don't think that those two sides of the story or three different aspects of the story are, are divorced from one another. So I think everything if I'm in a store and I walk past a bunch of pencils, it's not like I feel like every one of them is is crying out to me. It's only the one that you've used for a while and had a situation with. Not not only. Because if I walk through and look at 10,000 pencils and one of them is different enough mm-hmm. 
that it catches my eye and that it feels like it's at a disadvantage. I, I will, against my will, make a special relationship with it. Um, that never happens to, a, to the pencil that seems like the perfection of the form. I'm never seeking that. I'm never seeking the best pencil. I mean, I am seeking the online review for the best possible steak knives. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't go online and, and ask Amazon, what's the, what's the steak knife that sells the poorest and let me help its cause by buying it. Like I want the best. If I'm going to buy an SUV, I want what JD power and consumer reports agree is the best SUV. But if I'm if I'm looking for maybe it's not if I'm looking for, but if I'm not looking and I become aware of a thing, um, and there's no other way to say it but that that it calls out. Mm-hmm. It's often not the it's not the best one. I'm not responding to the tallest, straightest tree. It's a Charlie Brown problem. And does it burden me relative to the, kind of the decision that you made to be utilitarian? Mm-hmm. Do those things burden me? The when I think about the choice that you made and the idea that you try to pursue, which is that there's nothing in my house that is, that isn't in service right now, more or less, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not collecting things. If, if, if a hem gets frayed out, it goes, no, I never said that. Well, I know, but you, but you don't have a bunch of stuff piled up. No. And, but I used to the first half of my life. To. I sure did. Yeah, and you know what it's like, and and you're and what you're doing is responding to those, to that experience with this, with this new lifestyle. Yeah, and it's connected to. We talked about this a lot when I was trying to sell my house and buy a new house, mm-hmm. and a lot of those conversations have kind of gone dormant because my new house became a place of, uh, you know, in between worlds. I never fully moved into my new house. And so the reckoning that was so pregnant two years ago has not yet come. Where, But in a way, it profoundly has. Because for a year, I've been living out of a single closet. And people in my life ask me, like, well, like, if you could get into your storage container and you know what are the 10 things that you feel like you miss the most people love this kind of question and i have to answer truthfully there's nothing i there's nothing in all of my storage container that on a day-to-day basis i miss i don't think oh i wish i had that one shirt or oh that that painting of a turtle that I found that one time or, oh, that 
that uh, ceramic Eiffel Tower that was once a bottle of Prosecco that I used to display so proudly, I really need it now. You know, I don't, I don't need any of those things. And very rarely I'll think, I wish I had a second pair of shoes. But it's because this one pair of shoes that I wear every day, these, this pair of Blundstones, uh, it's because I've gotten them so wet or so dirty that it would just be nice to have a second pair. But in my storage container, I have 30 pairs of shoes. And so in answer to the question, like, what do I miss? Like, did I Marie Kondo myself? <laughs> more <laughs> dramatically more than, than wanted. <laughs> well, no, I mean, more dramatically than she would ever suggest. Like, I, everything I own, I can put in one closet. And yet I have like a full shipping container full of all of the belongings that came out of my last house. And that was after a full year of getting rid of stuff and getting rid of stuff where I felt like, I, you know, I was really cutting close to the bone. I remember my friend Jesse was visiting and she was going through my ties and saying, you know, you have over a hundred ties. We need to cull some of your ties. And how often do you wear a tie usually? Well, I used to wear them all the time. I mean, yeah. for a decade. Yeah. For a decade, I wore them. I wore them regularly. There wasn't a single tie I owned that I hadn't worn. But did I need a hundred of them? So she was picking these ties up and holding them up and going, you know, I mean, she had the, she had the understanding and the respect to not just sweep them into a bag. She held each one up and wanted to hear, knew that I would have a story and wanted to hear what, what why that tie mattered or was important to me. And we managed to take probably 25 ties out of the, out of the bunch. And it felt like we had done a lot of work that day, you know, that I, that I had made a lot of sacrifices and that she had been very patient and helped me take these ties out. And a lot of them were, well, you know, when you really look at what that tie is and what it does, it's redundant because this tie here does mostly that, mostly all that same stuff. Um, but when she, and so when she left, she felt like we had done, uh, that she'd been helpful, but she also on her, at her parting words were, you know, that you still have 75 ties. And I was like, I know, I know, but you know, like as far as, it, as far as I can go right now, that's as, that's as reduced a pile as I can make it. But now, Dan, I'm, you know, the day that I move into my new house and open up that shipping container and bring those things into the house and f open that box and find those 75 ties, not one of which have I thought of in the last two years right? since I put them in that box. Since, you know, since Jesse handed me the tape and I put them in that box and put the box like in a stack of boxes. Yeah. 
what's my relationship to those ties now? I think it would be a lot easier to take another 25 ties out, leaving me with only 50 ties and a feeling of accomplishment. But, but the honest fact is I needed zero of those ties mm-hmm. and continue to need zero of them. Probably there are plenty of men in the world who have one tie or none ties. Mm-hmm. But that isn't how I'm going to approach opening that box, I don't think. There will be a feeling of being reunited with all those wonderful ties and all the stories they contain. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to I don't know how to look at that box and say, I mean there there is there's a voice that says when you see the box that says ties on it, don't open it. Just put it right over in the thrift store pile. And I don't have a very long standing or close relationship with that voice. You know, I, that voice isn't some old friend. I'm not, I don't think of that voice as an enemy or a, or a competitor. That voice just feels like a, like someone on a cruise ship dock with a, with a clipboard mm-hmm. who's, who sees 10,000 people a day, an anonymous voice, one with no accent. And I think the, that the, the, the voice that would argue with it would say, oh, but there are a couple of my dad's ties in there that I can't possibly get rid of. And that would be the reason the box got opened. And once the box got opened and all the, all the genies poured forth, but, but, <laughs> but that's a thing I'm going to have to confront in, in the next couple of months because it's not just a box of ties, right? It's a, it's all the, it's all the three foot tall Prosecco bottles mm-hmm that aren't Prosecco bottles that I and a group of friends opened that bottle of Prosecco together when we were standing on top of our Eiffel Tower in our Paris. It was just a Prosecco bottle that I got at an estate sale that looked like the Eiffel Tower that I thought was clever or glib. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just sentimentality, it's glibness too that that I carry around among others. I mean, I have an entire quiver of, of tricks of the tricks of the mind, but I think they're all tricks of the heart. That, that, that they're less to do with fear and more to do with desiring a kind of fullness And I'm, and I don't know. I don't know if it's a pro, if they're proxies for a kind of love that I have too many receptors for, and not enough access to. Mm-hmm. 